0: Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their EdTech ideas into profitable businesses. In today's episode of the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, we have Ezekiel Tabit. Ezekiel, the founder of Tabit Tutoring, is a licensed teacher with a Masters in Teaching Arts and a Decade of Experience. He collaborates with students and parents to create tailored study plans, consistently achieving remarkable test score improvements of at least twenty percent. Hi and good morning, Ezekiel. Thank you so much for uh, joining the Knowledge Entrepreneur Show, taking time out uh, to be here with me here today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, Ezekiel, I was going through your uh, LinkedIn, and uh, you know, I see that you've spent more than a decade as you know, in the education domain, you know, as a teacher and stuff like that. Uh, But uh, one of the areas that I'd like to focus on this podcast today is your experience around uh, test prep coaching, you know, which you started in the year uh, 2020. But before I get there, if you could, you know, walk us through your journey of, you know, how you got into teaching, did you always prepare and train to be a teacher and stuff like that?
1: Uh yeah, so I started my career out in New York City. Um, I was at the time a biology student, and um, I like most biology students, I did not have a lot of money on hand, particularly in a city like New York, which is wildly expensive. So right. uh, I started my career out in the education sphere, just just through the the tutoring industry, but through the through the corporation side of tutoring. So I, I worked for major tutoring networks, and uh, it got to the point where uh, I graduated and I was actually enjoying the tutoring more than I was the hard science. And I, 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 just, I didn't want to put in an additional $100,000 in five, six years of my time to go get a PhD in microbiology. And so I spoke with my wife, you know, so I'm enjoying the tutoring side of this a lot more. I'm, I'd rather go and pursue a, a full-time education career while we're here in the city. New York's a really unique place to be an educator, uh, in America as well. New York city uh, has the largest school district in the country. So there was a lot of opportunity there at the time. Uh, I remember there was, there was a moment where I was teaching at almost 14, 15 different schools within a week. So I would go, I, I would go and I would do SAT test prep from one school, then immediately go and jump into the next one. I probably hit like two or three schools in a different day. Uh, that got exhausting very quickly. Um, so it hit the point where I got a full-time job. I was able to transform that into a full-time job as a classroom teacher where I started working in special education sphere, uh, primarily science special education, which is something that isn't very, very underrepresented. Right now, what's super well needed in the education industry is someone who can do special education for people with autism, neurodivergence, uh, any kind of additional special needs, but also is able to teach hard sciences, physics, chemistry, uh, calculus, algebra. So those mixture of things was a pretty rare combination at the time. It's getting a little bit more popular. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really one of the, that experience of working in that side for a number of years really prepped me to be able to branch out on my own as a tutoring uh, expert, because uh, I'm a firm believer that just because you understand the content, does not make you an effective educator and this yeah. is this is something that I've seen over and over and over and over again. just you can be a complete expert. you can get a five on the AP calculus exam every single time and not know how to demonstrate to someone else how to represent that success. Right. Um, so I think that's a really important component. And then in fast fast forwarding to 2020 when the pandemic came out. Uh, I had a pretty unique experience with, uh, the pandemic, as far as being an educator came by uh, the, the pandemic turned everybody upside down on their head, uh, particularly if you were a teacher at the time. Um, but for me, it was uh, an even more intense experience. I was in Brooklyn at the time, uh, working for one of the major charter networks. I was working for uncommon schools and I don't know if you recall, but in America, um, when the pandemic hit, New York City was pretty much ground zero and particularly Brooklyn was hit very hard. So when they pulled the schools out of the system, um, New York was one of the very first districts to do it. And my school was the first school in the entire city to actually pull out and put into a full-time digital uh, education sphere. So we had, I think we went from in a month's time we went from having no online platform whatsoever to taking an entire school of it's almost like 40,000 students and putting them in full online instruction wow. so that was a pretty wild month um getting preparing for that evacuation and it required you to if if you didn't have experience teaching in a digital platform you had to learn very very quickly um and so it's it's Invention through the the necessity is the mother of invention, as they say. So you you have to basically adapt or die. Um, There's a virus out. We have to learn how to teach all these kids on instruction. And so predictably, that first year was rather, I wouldn't say disastrous, but it had a lot of challenges. Uh, I remember there was one point where I was teaching a biology course for ninth graders and I had 150 students all in one online classroom, which is... It's it's a very challenging position to be in to try and teach 159th graders. Like if, if this were a college course, yeah, that would have yeah. been a difference. Like, I think I could have handled that, but like it kind of takes you from being an educator and put you in the position. Of being, I felt like I was more of a chat room moderator than I was an educator at the time. Um, right. But what it did do was really, I had already been experimenting with online uh, education. It was something that I, I knew I wanted to explore more, but. It's kind of difficult when you're in a classroom, uh, for a solid 12 hours of each of your days. And then as soon as we made that shift, I realized, well, wow, all of these tools are here. Uh, I'm really learning how to use the, 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 Google cloud sphere of information networks a lot more effectively. Things like using Google classroom became paramount. Things like understanding how do I, how do I organize a zoom classroom, uh, became a lot more important how do i i was experimenting with all sorts of ways to take uh, what was in front of me and demonstrate it on a digital screen um, and i went through a lot of different phases with that so like all, all these refinement process that is part of the learning process of being an online tutor were things that i was doing in my regular nine to five all of a sudden and for a solid almost two years time so in, during the pandemic i had While Because you were working from home, you had just additional time on my hands. Uh, I spoke with my wife. I'm like, well, I'm already learning this enormous brand new skill set. We we might as well make it work for us. So I started to foray into finding online students in my off hours. And uh, like any uh, aspiring tutor, and I I cannot recommend this enough, the first step, if you don't have any connections in the industry whatsoever and you're trying to find your first students, first step. Hit up every single person you know uh, and email them. And you don't have to just tell them, I am now doing online tutoring. Uh, these are the subjects that I'm willing to teach. This is, this is a, if you know anybody, uh, hit them up. You, your personal network is probably your most powerful tool in the beginning. I'm sure right. you've heard this on the show at some point in one shape or another. So if, if you're listening and you, you want to get started, that's the way to do it. Uh, and that does transform into a couple of clients. And even if it doesn't, it puts the word out there that people know. Um oh well, this person that I, I can vouch for because I know them personally is doing the service. If I see anybody now I'm going to give you a recommendation, and I don't have to ask very hard for that recommendation because we already have an existing relationship so that translated right. into a number of students into that first year, and uh the the business started adapting, and I realized well, it's one thing to say you're a tutor, but the next step was to really start to specialize um and so i started I started learning. Uh, what people have the highest level of need for is uh, test prep for SAT, ACT. Uh, one that is actually has a very small, much smaller pool of tutors and is not quite as competitive in terms of having to outperform or, or compete for the same clients is the AP advanced placement network of examination. So I also do uh, AP physics, AP chemistry, AP bio, and AP calculus. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I, Started getting a lot of students. And then the special education side was my personal innovation. So what I started realizing is you have a lot of these special needs students, particularly students with uh, autism is a, a, a particular one. Uh, well, some of them really do not work well with the online environment. But for some of them, the, online, the switch from in-classroom instruction to online instruction was a godsend for a lot of these kids. Um, some of them work really, really well within the confines of a one-on-one classroom setting. So, and just just because I'm autistic doesn't mean I'm not interested in taking the SAT exam. Just because I might have some neurodivergency issues doesn't mean that you're not qualified to go and try to get a five on the AP physics exam. But if you have those kinds of, if you have a student with those kinds of issues, it's really, really difficult to find a tutor who specializes in. I'm going to teach a calculus, but I also, you know, took my master's degree, so th- th- that's that's a pretty rare combo. So that was my little niche in the tutoring sphere that I really started to hit, and a, a lot of parents have responded to that, where they they're very great when you get a parent who is looking for a very specific niche in education and then they're able to find it they're not only are they willing to pay the fee that you're, you're asking for the service, they're happy to do it because wow, am I relieved that I found somebody who can fulfill this need that I have for my
0: student. Um, that's right. been my experience so far. Great stuff, Ezekiel. Got it. Uh, thank you for, you know, summarizing your journey because uh, it's just like, kind of given me a structure and then you know i'd like to address each and every phase uh would like sure. to go deeper uh, i'd like to start off from this you know special education um mm-hmm. you know what is it like for uh you know somebody who hasn't had the experience you know who's just teaching normal students what is how would you put to them like what it feels like to be teaching uh you know or you know working in the special education sphere
1: if you if you haven't worked in the special education sphere, sphere um... The, the biggest difference is uh, it's it's just a slightly different experience because you're teaching to someone who has a lot of alternate learning needs. So if you're accustomed to, say, a general education classroom where you're teaching with general education students, you, pr- you probably have a curriculum. That curriculum stays pretty consistent, especially if you're a veteran teacher and you've been doing it a number of years. You're probably not making enormous changes to your curriculum on a regular basis. You It's... I mean, your, your classroom messages start to have a, a general consistency. And that's not to say that special education people don't have consistency, but you need to have a higher degree of flexibility. Um, I, I'll, I'll go back. So, so one thing that I really learned when I took uh, my master's uh, course, because I ended up getting my master's in special education and science education, was right. the power of learning how to differentiate your materials. And what I mean by that is um, I have a lesson plan that either I wrote or was handed to me by the district. And it's a lesson plan that works – it might work well within a general education classroom, but you have to really understand the personal needs of your individual students. This is where uh, understanding how to read and write an IEP report, an individual education plan, becomes really important because that gives – it's kind of your cheat sheet on how does this student learn? Is this student – specifically in uh, a visual learner? Are they not going to get anything out of auditory instruction, but they need additional visual cues in order to learn this material? Are they students that uh, might be fabulous readers and are able to write uh, almost at a prodigious level, but they are completely incapable of understanding basic math? And you have to understand what kind of needs you're working with. There is no one size fits all for that special education sphere. Um, So being able to really tailor your lesson plans to the individual is the hallmark of of that field.
0: Got it, Ezekiel. And uh, when it comes to the strength, the number of students in a classroom when you're doing special education, is it the same as general students or is it, you know, a little more lesser and focused because of the nature? It depends. There's a lot of different types of special education classrooms. If I'm doing,
1: if I'm teaching a course, so if we had a course where the classroom was only students who were designated as special needs, we call those pathway courses. Um, and right. in those pathway classes, they're typically smaller in size. So as opposed to maybe having 30 students, I might have 13 uh, to 15 students in that classroom. But it's just as much work because... Instead of trying to do a one, instead of trying to do instruction of one set of materials to thirty students, it's more like I'm trying to teach almost four or five consecu- uh, lesson plans at the same time to smaller groups of students who I know are going to learn differently. So you need to have uh, when you're working in a classroom environment like that, you really, really need to be on top of your classroom management. You need to be able to. You're zipping across the room. You cannot just stand in front of the classroom on the board. And write the material down. You have to, you have to continually network your way around and make sure is everybody on the same page is what I'm trying to get them. Then there are integrated classrooms where you have special needs students that are in the same classroom as general education students. And typically, when you're doing that, you're either you are the main teacher or you're doing co-teaching, which is actually very popular in uh, New York. It's 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 common elsewhere, but especially in New York, where I might have a general education teacher uh, in an algebra course. And in that one course, it's loaded with a a number of special needs students who are we're trying to do an integrated classroom with them. And so then my job becomes I'm going to focus more on those seven or nine kids in your gen ed course and make sure that they are on on course with the material. So I'll take the materials that teacher wrote and I'll add my own differentiation to them. Great. Um, So it's and then there's, there's those are pretty much the two polar extremes. Then you might have one on ones as well. But it, there's, it's a very mixed bag. I, I don't want to spend the next hour just talking about the different types of special education classrooms. And believe me, I could. Um, but it really depends no, on uh, the circumstances. Yeah. Got it. Yeah.
0: This is, this is great. Thank you. But, you know, before I move on from this topic, I just have one question. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, Absolutely. especially when you said about co-teaching, I think uh, you sounded more like a, you're like a translator, you know, who translates general to kind of special. That's how I perceive it. That's and, a great way yeah. of putting it, actually. And, uh, Right. And um, what, what made you choose uh, to do your master's in special education? I mean, I uh, actually is it almost, the opportunity, in, a, in a weird way, I
1: fell backwards into it almost. Like, uh, I did not plan to become a special educator. So, if, right. you, if you recall, I was, I was doing tutoring for SAT tutoring. I was doing that with a company called A list tutoring. Uh, and that right. was based most primarily in Harlem and the Bronx at the time. And one of the schools that were contracted out to this company were hiring, uh, I was looking for science and math uh, teaching jobs at the time. And one of the schools that I had taught at uh, had a position for what was called uh, an academic success teacher uh, or mm-hmm. an academic collaboration teacher. And what they really needed is they needed a special educator who was willing to co-teach, but the classes they wanted someone to co-teach at were physics, calculus, and chemistry and biology. Um, And, you know, ask any teacher like, hey, do you want to teach four different subjects this year? The answer is almost always no, Um, because that's that's an enormous amount of work. So it was a really difficult position for them to fill. So when uh, I put in an application for the job, I got a call and I said, we understand you don't have a, a, a teaching license yet or special education experience. But you understand the content to this class and we cannot find somebody who's willing to to accept on this role, who can fit all these hats, like finding somebody who's going to say, well, I can do it all isn't really on the cards. So we'd like to bring you in and give you some additional training to be able to be qualified as a special educator while fulfilling this role. So I kind of just fell into it just by having the science background in the first place. And then turns out I absolutely love doing it. And then that just became, so then when it did become time for me to go and get my master's, I said, "I'm, I'm doing special education. I'm going to do special education
0: and science education, because that's where my niche is. Stuff Got it. Um, Ezekiel, another, uh, you know, you also mentioned somebody being an expert in a subject doesn't mean that they can demonstrate the same to others, you know. So what do you think, what are the core components that make up uh, for a good teacher? Um, that's a great question. So. I actually, when, I, when I'm
1: asked a question like this, uh, the, the model I like to, ex, the, the two models I like to ex demonstrate is like consider the difference between taking a high school class or a college course, like a college lecture hall course. If you've ever been to college, eventually you're going to be in a giant lecture hall where you have a professor and they've got yep. uh, a digital board or a chalkboard or whatever they're accustomed to using. And what they're going to do is they're they're, they're going to say, all right, cool, here's the material. Here's a practice problem. Here's the homework. Good luck on the exam. And that's the class. And that's what I'm and and so I'm not knocking that, that there's a place for that in education. There's a place for that in college. But if every single college course were to be within that same formula, you would have a much lower level of actual learning going on in the college. There's a reason not every college class looks like that. And so I think when you go consider if you've ever taken a more, uh, a high school class that has a more intimate environment, I think that's also a pretty universal experience where maybe you've been in a high school class that isn't 30 students, but like cut down to like 15 or 20. Um, it's why is it easier to learn in that environment? Well, when you're a high school teacher, you can't just give a 15 year old. All right, cool. Here's a calculus book. All right. Here's, here's one practice problem. Right here's the general principle. All right, bye. Have a great day. I I hope you learned something. It doesn't really work like that. It's it's all about understanding the communication needs. It's about understanding. um, I I talked a lot about how special educators have to tailor their their education to the individual, but general education teachers need to do that too. And just because I understand the subject matter, that's only part of the equation. Like you need to understand the subject matter. But then I need to be able to figure out how am I going to parse this information into different components so that it is more palatable for someone who is a complete layman and maybe even doesn't have some of the prerequisite skills. That's a part of the learning gap. Also, if you've ever stepped into a a, a modern classroom, particularly in a place like New York or or uh, L.A. also has this problem a lot. I've also seen it in Atlanta uh, and and generally in a lot of uh, larger cities in America, there's the learning gap in the learning gap is essentially you get to a certain age and you start to miss out on certain skills that you need for the classes you're taking right now. I've had students in chemistry that struggle with basic math. Well, how am I going to teach this person if basic basic math skills are something I need to integrate into my lesson? And so there's all sorts of under the hood techniques that you begin to learn over your years of experience as a teacher that make the process of taking raw information and making it palatable to the student, and that's why that's why being a veteran teacher is so important, and that's why that first year of teaching is so notoriously difficult because there's a lot to learn and there's a lot of intangibles involved that uh, you might not see if 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 you're the student you don't know that I took five hours to plan how to segment this lesson into different chunks. Like you're gonna see the 50 minutes that I designed. Just like if you read a book, you don't see all of the edited versions of that book that the author cut out and painstakingly went to writing went to writing circles with and and tore their hair out and was looking at a blank page. I just read the book from start to finish. So it's 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 all within that same sphere.
0: Great stuff, Ezekiel. Uh, What when you started out and for, you know, after a decade now, it's been a decade since you've been there doing that, right? I mean, what are the key mindset changes that you've had to kind of make, you know, uh, within yourself to kind of, you know, become that person who's just not an expert in what he knows, but who teaches well, from a very high level, I'm asking, you know, some of the key understandings or perceptions Mm that will help teachers realize, oh, yes, maybe just because I know that I'm an expert in this content doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to teach effectively. The two words that come to mind is discipline and patience, uh, specifically
1: as it pertains to running a class. I think the biggest wall that a new teacher will run into is developing that behavior management and classroom management. Um, Great. I, I, have I've met more than a couple PhDs that got tired of their career and decided I want to, I want to try my hand at teaching. And you know, when, 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 when you're a veteran teacher who's been doing it for 10 years and you see somebody who's doing a career change, you want to be supportive and I will be, cause I'm a professional and I want, I want you to succeed in your classroom, but you're also kind of standing there like, okay, let's see how you do when you have 30, 14-year-olds who are screaming and on their phones and uh, who don't necessarily want to be in that classroom? How am I going to get them all to sit down, focus on a subject? That's, I I think that's a much taller order than showing somebody how to to do differential equations. So if you don't have that element of classroom management, that's what you need to learn how to do first. Um, You cannot ask any teacher who's been in the game a while you cannot teach a class that is not willing to listen to you at all so it's it's just impossible so if you don't know it like what do i do when i have kids who are doing stuff like throwing things at each other when my back is turned what do i do when i have students that just won't stop talking ever in the classroom? How do I know when I should send a student out versus is it something I should handle? When, sh- How do I handle doing parent phone calls to make sure that the students have some kind of disciplinary setup at home? How do I do outreach to parents? All of these are elements that you won't know if you're coming only from a math environment. These are things that you're not going to know how to do if you've been in a biology lab and you decided to become a teacher. That's, you're going to have to learn that stuff from scratch, and that is why there's that first year wall where a lot of people just don't want to climb over it, get into it. And then I see, I've, I think every single year I've ever taught, there's people who have, all right, cool. I'm going to try teaching. And then by Christmas, I'm done. And they walk out. There's, there's people that we call them, we call them the Christmas exodus people. They always leave within that first six months. There's going to be at least one or two people, which understandable. Right. I, I don't blame you, but
0: <laughs> know what you're signing up for. Right. Uh, you And you spoke about this transition, you know, in 2020, you had just one month to take 40,000 people, your, your, your school is the first one to go digital completely. And uh, mm-hmm. what was from a teaching point of view right now, you just described how difficult it is to kind of maintain a certain uh, level of decorum in a class. But if, if, when you're in person, and it, it just mm-hmm. magnifies when you go online. How did you deal with that when you went online? Because you would have been in the same shoes as a first-time teacher. Um, it was definitely a challenge. Uh,
1: no, no doubts about it. Uh,
0: I mean, to be fair,
1: I, I got to give credit to Uncommon. They did a very good job of it's, it's, it's no simple task to take an entire school network and place it online in a short period of time. Um, so we did the best we could. The second year, I think uh, we had a chance to iron out some of the issues. It's very difficult to make changes mid-year. It's a little bit like trying to tie your shoes while running at the same time. It's there's just so many moving pieces. So that first year, um, I think the the major issue is just it was new for everybody, including the students. You, that, that can't be under that can't be understated. Um, I think the major challenge was those the, all the the minor check-ins that I have it with a student to make sure are you on task, are you comprehending the material, are you even paying attention in the first place. All of those redirections that I have as an in-classroom teacher were suddenly taken away or drastically changed. Um, you know, I'm, I've developed the ability over my career, I can walk past the student's desk, look at what's on their paper and within within milliseconds immediately know exactly where are you in the learning process are you have you not been paying attention to the whole classroom? Are you paying attention but are you misunderstanding? And then I can very quickly look, scan through their work and see where is that misunderstanding Do a quick redirection I usually I carry uh, I carry my purple pen. With me, I'm notorious for having the purple pen in school. And I do purple because no one else uses that color. So when I make (laughs) a correction on your page, you know I was the one who did it. And this is the right way to do it. Um, And those things get lost real quickly in an online environment, especially an online environment where you have a lot of students. It's different in the tutoring sphere where I might be working between one to three students. Then then we have a lot more tools for me to do check in. And if if your parents are paying, you know, a fee for you to be there, chances are if I tell your mom or dad, hey, you know, John isn't paying attention during our tutoring time. John's getting a talking to. But if I (laughs) a, a lot of a lot of kids, you know, keep in mind, these are kids who are staying in New York City apartments at the time. These apartments are not set up for you to have a school environment on top of that. I've had students who are trying to listen to me do a lecture in class online when they've got four different siblings all trying to listen to different ones, and they're all at, like, like, trying to be in a chaotic environment, and I have no control over that. So there's, there's right. so many different elements. Uh, one of the things that I found was really helpful was um, learning to train my students to always take a photograph of your work and submit it at the end of class. Um, I think consistency has always been an important part of being an educator, but if you're going to do it online, it becomes critically important. You have to have the same structure. I want my student to to come into my online class and know exactly what are all the major beats of what we're going to do today. We're going to A, we're going to do our do now exercise, then we're going to move immediately into me talking a little bit about uh the main points of today you're gonna take notes on that. I'm gonna have I have a lot of color coding uh in my online notes so that you know exactly what I want you to write down and what you don't have to write down. Um Great. then you want to move in exactly okay cool let's do our practice problems. I've got two and then I'll list exactly how many practice problems I expect you to do. Then you have an independent problem or two. Then here's your homework assignment. Take your picture of your note you have two minutes take a picture of your notes and upload them to Google Classroom before you leave. And you want that structure to be super consistent Every single time. I shouldn't have to tell you as a student what's today going to look like. You should already know because we've done it many, many times before.
0: Right. And, you know, coming to your, uh, the point where you decided to kind of use all these skills that you learned for mm-hmm. yourself, uh, it's easier said than done, the transition, right? I mean, it's really exciting when you're having the thought of all that. But how long, what are the things that you had to do to kind of replicate, um, you know, what it boils down to money to a certain extent, right? Uh, It's also about money. So how long and what are the Mm -hmm. things that you had to do to kind of replicate the kind of money that you made in school when you transition into your own thing? So it's, you have to to be willing to
1: upskill and really uh, absorb a, a business mindset. Which uh, is something you just don't have to do as an educator. Uh, I've personally that wasn't a, a too big a transition for me because I've always been fascinated about the industry and business side of education. Um, right. If if you pay if you pay attention enough, so uh, if you pay attention enough in school, you realize there's a lot of very complex finance going on behind the hood, and that's more at the administrative level. Um, and that, that, that kind of information is available for you to learn, but it's not really out in the open. It's not like your principal is going to take a whole a whole staff meeting and explain, all right, we allocated these many dollars for these contractual workers, and then we're allocating this money. Like that stuff that all goes on kind of behind the door, and you have to learn it for yourself. And then how do I apply that in a tutoring environment? Well, a tutoring environment is going to be funded and has a different business environment than a school. So, the I mean, the hardest part, for anybody, I think, is to figure out. Well, cool. I want to be a tutor. Where do I get students? Um, that's that's step one. If you don't have people who are actually coming to you and saying, "I want to, uh, I want you to teach my student," then you don't have a business in the first place. And then. You, you, you learn these in pieces as you move along the journey. That's why it's called a journey in the first place, because you're not going to learn everything all at once. First thing I learned, like I said, I tapped into my personal network and I started finding clients on a slow trickle of of new students coming in. And then and that's happening like, wow, I need to build a, a way to build these clients from scratch, you know, uh, how do I develop an invoice? Uh, um, How do I want these financial transactions? And then I learned like, well, what's the most convenient way? And then I realized, okay, I'm going to do PayPal, I'm going to do Zelle, and I'm going to do Cash App because those are the three major ones. Chances are, if you're a human being, you have access to one of those three platforms. That's how I'm going to collect my money because I'm doing this. I, I, I went out the gate uh, online only. I didn't have time to go to other people's houses or to set up a physical location. It also opened the door for me to find clients from a much wider sphere of, of yeah. all over the place. The the challenge with doing online only is there's a higher level of competition and Frankly, it's it, I think it's it's harder to find online students. It's much easier now after the pandemic now that it's been normalized. Online like it, right. it almost feels strange. Like we're having we're having a, a digital meeting right now, but it, it it feels strange to to think that there was a time where Zoom wasn't the norm of communication. So right. the, the pandemic really transformed the mindset, which is something you don't have control over people's mindset. You can only you can only control what you're going to pitch to them. So that was a major boon to people like me who wanted to, who wanted to get into that online uh, tutoring sphere, but maybe we're waiting for, for the push. Uh, the, the, the game has definitely changed there. Then you have to start thinking about, well, teaching one-on-one SAT is very different than teaching math to 30 students in a single classroom. Um, I don't necessarily... I actually think it's an easier barrier to cross over. I think that that the things that you need to learn are not quite as varied or complex, but at the same time you still have to consider the, the lesson plans that I've been developing for the last couple of years aren't going to work in this one-on-one or one-on-three environment. So right. then you have to start, you have to be willing to do your research and really know what you're talking about. Again, content knowledge doesn't translate into education knowledge. So uh, I, one thing that I did is I, I think I read, at least five or six different SAT books that year. I personally, I take an SAT test twice a year myself just to make sure I'm staying on top of what kind of changes are they implementing in the test. I always want to be able to think about it, about taking that exam from a student perspective. I think that's critically important. Same thing for AP uh, AP physics exam. Same thing for the AP uh, chemistry exam. I, I try to read at least a book every other month on one of these subjects just to stay sharp and see what kind of changes are being made in the industry. You want to stay ahead of the curve. Um, that's a lot of, of front load research knowledge just in that. Then you have to take that that information. And what I like to do is I like to write down or photograph different pieces that I thought were really well outlined and then mimic that in my own way. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a great example. The For the SAT Mass Step, math test i saw uh i i really enjoy teaching students you know do you want to do back solving or do you want to do uh uh, create a number and plug in plug in methods and there's a bunch of different ones and students really struggle not with actually implementing those methods but knowing when should i use back solve or when should i use plug in. that's a much more challenging question than actually using the techniques themselves and uh i i was having a lot of issue kind of trying to communicate to students when you should differentiate using those two strategies and so what I did is I went on I just went very deep in my own personal research and I just I read every article I could find on those two subjects and then I broke down well what do I think are the most effective ones so now when I encounter a student who's struggling with that You know, I have my own method that like my own go to method for how do I want to explain when we should use those. But if that doesn't translate to the student. Cool. Well, I've seen it. I've seen it also explained this way. I've also seen it explained this way. So then I'll just run through five or six different explanations on the same subject. One of those is going to stick with the student. Everybody learns differently. This is why you need to have more tricks up in your sleeve. Um, So. The short answer to your question is you have to understand how do I adapt the skills to that entrepreneurial mindset? No one's going to do it for you if you're going to be an individual. You, you have to learn, how am I going to create my platform? How am I going to build for that platform? How am I going to attract customers? And how am I going to, and how am I going to continue to market myself and improve my service? And then on the other side, you have to retrain yourself how to be a new edu- type of educator.
0: Right. Great. Great. Ezekiel, uh, you also said, you know, you're focusing now on uh, students that need special education only or you uh, teach all types of students after you've gone independent? All types. I I definitely highlight
1: the fact that I have uh, special education uh, experience and that I I know how to work with students with special needs. Um, But you don't want to make you you don't want to box yourself in. Uh, and I, you know, I've even mentioned that, like I, I try to focus on SAT, ACT and AP examinations, but that's not to say that that's all that I'm willing to take on. I also work with students. Mm. Um, you get a big mixed bag of students. You're going to have all sorts of parents coming up to you with different types of needs. So it really depends on what the parents are looking for. I have parents sometimes right now I have a couple of students, their parents say, look, their parents say, I don't really need you to prep my, my middle schooler for the SAT, but. Um, so the school has really changed, uh, especially post pandemic parents don't necessarily know how to, how do I develop a learning plan for my student? So I have students where all we'll do is I'll do a half hour check-in with you every day and just make sure, did you get this homework done? Have you written in your planner? Um, or let's look at, let's take a look at what you struggled with today and just, and, and relearning some of those really critical daily habits that maybe your parent either doesn't have time to administer their students, or maybe they just, maybe, you know, the way an adult is going to approach problems is really different for a kid. And sometimes you want an expert to help bridge that gap. I don't do just special education because it's too limiting. Um, I think it's more of an accent that I'm capable of absorbing that niche uh, rather than marketing only one. You don't want to box yourself into one thing. You want to make yourself look like you're capable of multiple disciplines. It actually makes you a much more attractive educator to parents.
0: Gold. Zekiel, you said when you started off, you know, you first tapped into all of the people that you knew personally, you know, your first circle of network. Uh, it's been about now two, three years. And what's your primary mode of student acquisition today? Um,
1: social media is starting to become the new driver uh, of that. And that, that was probably the hardest part of the business for me to learn was how to use social media. I'm not a social media person. I'm not really interested in Facebook. I don't go on Instagram. Um, So so I think before I started the business, the last time I was on Facebook was sometime in like 2009. So when I went, I remember very distinctly, my wife is more into social media than I am. So I remember there was I felt I felt very I felt very old and silly at one point because like it's it's 2020 I'm going on to Facebook for the first time of years and I remember looking at my like what happened to Facebook it's it's so different that was a a very like kind of a wake up call like wow social media has changed so you had to I had to rechange retrain myself on how to use it in the first place uh, scheduling content was a challenge because I didn't know like the content that I had been accustomed to seeing when I did go on social media was very different. It used to be more personal. Now it's a little. Now I'd say it's almost more. It's like it's personal when impersonal at the same time. Learning how to do things like create shorts, learning how to create um, marketing content that has an emotional connection that like create like identifies uh, a problem that we can both understand, then presents uh, an emotional connection. Like you know, uh, I, I I try to make content now that looks. Like uh, parents don't have time in the after, parents who might work in evening hours don't always have time to help kids with their homework, present the problem. This creates a lot of issues, especially for parents who really care about their students' education, but just right. don't know how to input the, the needs of the students, creating that emotional connection. And then saying, uh, you know, I'm a tutor who specializes in bridging that gap, preventing a solution, so that social media platforms have really started, like the first students that I have where I've had no pre-existing connection from them all came from social media. Uh, Nextdoor has been a surprising gain. Uh, that's one that a lot of people don't use. I highly recommend it, uh, particularly if you are a tutor. The thing about Nextdoor is that it's very easy to be a uh, to be a top search as a tutor in your specific area. It also, like, it's it's not a national, pl- it's not a platform that you can advertise nationally on. But if, if you're looking to like start to develop a block of business just within your own region, I highly recommend Nextdoor. It's a lot less competition and people really do use it. Um, LinkedIn has also been a surprising one. So in right now, in addition to uh, to my online tutoring business, I also do recruiting for educators. Um, and then I started learning that like connecting with educators and uh, other professionals on LinkedIn is a great way to drive traffic to your other social media platforms. So if, if I built like if, if, if I laid out a map for how do I get traffic diverted to my business online, um, LinkedIn is a place where I post a lot to gain attention and uh, to, to kind of gain that sort of status as an expert in your field. And I have a lot of teachers that have suggested my other comment, my other content to parents just by like, I've seen this guy on LinkedIn. He talks a lot about a lot of different fairy topics. I've looked into his other content. You might find this helpful. And I've actually gotten suggestions just through that, or at least diverting eyeballs onto my other traffic. And then Instagram is where uh, I find that parents hang out a lot more. Instagram and Facebook. Instagram, I think, is better than Facebook in that regard, Facebook is more for very, very specific areas that I want to market. Like if I want to go to parental groups, I remember there was one time like a a, a very random encounter. I met a parent from Michigan who wanted me to work with their student. And then they said, you know, I'm in this Michigan moms of students, Facebook group. You should really get, you should join the group and post there about what you're doing with my student. And I ended up getting another two students out of that Facebook group just by doing that. So like Facebook's more for niche marketing. Instagram is more for uh, widespread marketing. And then LinkedIn is really for diverting professionals to get traffic to come to those two others. And then on top of that, I also uh, do an email letter. uh, And I find that I get a lot of sales out of that email letter. So sometimes if you have all these traffics, it's great to have people looking at your reels on Instagram, but that doesn't necessarily translate into business. I don't get paid anything just because you looked at my content. So then the next step is like, like what's what's your call to action? Um, and you really, really want to think about what that call to action looks like. So for me, I'm like, cool, join my email letter. If you sign up for the letter, I'll send you uh, my freebie. My freebie happens to be um, my, ni- my top nine uh, tips for developing an SAT study plan, which shocking number of people do not know how to develop a, a study plan from start to finish. So a lot of people will see that, like if it was like, if it's like, Hey, read my SAT book. People's like, no, I'm not reading a hundred pages of your content. But if it's like, read my, uh, let me send you a freebie. That's a blurb that is going to focus on a skill. I know you probably don't have that gains attention. And then from that email list, when I send it out, like, here's what I'm working on this week. Here's some new ideas I have. I see a lot of people. And then you have a call to action at the end of every email. That's where you see a lot of people either get diverted to your website and schedule a consultation or just call me up and say, let's do a session right away.
0: Got it, got it, Ezekiel. Um, the next question was, uh, you know, so you, you, you're you just on your own, or you said you also recruit, uh, you help uh, recruiting teachers for other educators. Do you do that for yourself, or are you just, you know, a one-man uh, company? So- so for for
1: for my for my actual tutoring business for Tabit Tutoring, which is my my, my LLC, that's all yeah. run by me. I'm I'm a one man operation. I do hire I do subcontract jobs out to other teachers within my right. network, but I I prefer to like I prefer to work with teachers that I know I can vouch for, and I only license out uh, I only subcontract jobs out to people who I know are licensed i i'm hmm. a personally a big believer that like a licensed teacher is someone who it, it, that license speaks for a lot it shows that you took the time to actually and go get your credentials it shows that you have been labeled as qualified to run a classroom that's the kind of person that if i'm gonna if if, if a kid comes to me and says hey uh, i really need you to get my student to a five on the AP calculus exam and i want you to do five uh, four hours a week with the student sometimes i just don't have the time to do it but I'm not going to I'm not going to put an ad on Craigslist and hope somebody who can, somebody I've never met before can do that because then like I'm not going to put my professional reputation yeah. on the line with someone I don't know. So that's different. The recruiting side is different. So what I do in the recruiting world is I connect teachers um, to different uh, job contracts around the United States. Um, so that's the other side of what I've been building. So. I'd say about half of my time is dedicated to the TABIT tutoring, which is the thing about the tutoring industry is that you have these golden hours, which are really your selling Great. hours. Parents don't want to hire you out at, 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 se- at like 10 a.m. Their kid is at school. I'm at work. That doesn't make any sense. So your, your golden hour for selling is, between, is usually from like 3 o'clock to 7 o'clock. That's when you really have parents. And then you can extend that. Like if then with time changes, uh, you know, if I'm working with a parent in LA, then that might, that might, you can push it back as far as 10. Uh, If I'm working with a parent on the East coast and that, that, then that's going to stay pretty concerned. I'm on the East coast. So those hours usually stay consistent for me, but what you can't do, you can't have hours of tutoring blocks being sold for 12 hours of the day. You just, parents won't do that. So then, well, I can't just sit here and only work for three or four hours out of the day. I want to do something else with my time. Like, I'm, I'm, yes, I can make money out of that time, but like, what? Like, you're looking, an entrepreneur is going to look at all that time that isn't being sold, that isn't sellable. Well, what else can I do with that time? Um, right. So, with the recruitment side, what I've been doing with that is developing it into a system. I want to create an online class that is a professional development system for teachers. So what I've noticed in the professional development world for teachers is that there's a lot of content based on how do I become more effective in the classroom. But what no one is talking about is how do I achieve my own professional goals as an educator? There's this big mass exodus from the profession right now is a lot of people feel that compensation isn't up to the amount of work that's being asked of them or there's all sorts of people are leaving the classroom. So I see all these professional coaches who are doing things like, let me help you be a transitional teacher coach. I'm gonna help you transition out of teaching into a different career. You wanna be a coder? Do you wanna be an accountant? Do you wanna do something other than teaching? That's actually becoming quite popular. But what no one is doing is, let me show you how you can do things like Get a license work in a different state. Do you want to come from? Do you want to teach in a different country? Do you are you live in a color country and you want to come teach in America? Like, how do I make more money as an educator? There's a lot of levers you can pull that people don't know how to how to work, and I'm trying to close that gap. So that's that's what I'm trying to build in the second half. So right now there's the recruiting to contracts. There's tablet tutoring, and I'm building a a course. I want to start on Udemy with the course, but it's specifically right. going to be like uh, steps on get your license. How do I, uh, a big one is if you move, if you live in a state that does not pay well for teachers, how do I uplift uh, and uproot my life into a completely different state and plug into a different education system that's going to pay maybe twice as much? Because anybody who's done education will tell you the location you're teaching in uh, will change the amount you're getting paid quite drastically. I've seen people uh, like uh, I've seen people live in small towns in South Carolina that get paid like maybe thirty thousand dollars a year. I said, Well, why don't you just go move to Massachusetts? They have reciprocal licenses and go get paid eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year just by moving your location. That's a pretty
0: big jump in pay, but people don't yeah. know how to do it. Hmm. God got it ZK. And probably the last topic that I want to touch upon is mm-hmm. You've gone online post pandemic. So when it comes to software tools that a teacher needs to kind of, you know, do online tutoring, what are the stuff that you use? You cannot do without. Ooh, great question. Um, So again, everyone's going to
1: find their own different tool sets that they like. Uh, personally, I use an iPad and uh, I have a mirroring system that, uh, allows me. So what I do is I have a program that allows me to have a whiteboard, but instead of mirroring it directly to my laptop, what I do is it mirrors it to a URL. So I can give the students a URL mm. and that way um I because I have found that if you're trying to mirror something on a tablet directly to your computer, there's a considerable amount of lag. Great. Um and what I personally, the way that I think it's the most effective work, you want to simplify what you're doing. So I like to take a PDF of anything else. So I can take a Word document or anything that I'm building and convert it into a PDF, put it in this program, and then be able to write directly on it with an Apple Pencil. Um, I find that that's really critical. And you can take entire textbooks and, and do that. And I find that that's really a, a critical component. I use Zoom, although I'd, I'd like to transition away from Zoom into a different platform. I've been experimenting with Google plus I use zoom because it's the one that everybody is comfortable with using is with using zoom. It's been a pretty universal word. If I, if I tell a parent who I've never met before, you know, Hey, we're going to do a digital platform. We're going to do it on zoom. They're, they're already, yeah, that's not a problem. Um, Google classroom is also one of my most important tools. So one of my selling points is I tell my parents, listen, um, One thing that I can provide you as an independent tutor that you're not going to get if you go to one of the big companies like Kaplan or Sylvan is uh, you get a a level of personalization outside just the hour that I'm engaging with your student. So let's say uh, I, every student that I have, the first step i always do is I build a Google Classroom platform for you, where that's going to be, this is where you're going to be, it's a central location where you're going to put Any work that you complete, I want to see it as your tutor to make sure you're doing it correctly. This is where you're going to put it. If I have extra reading assignments, that's where I'm going to put it. And most importantly, and what brings the real value is if you are doing your homework, let's say you're studying for the AP physics test, and our hour isn't until next week. Well, you might not have time to wait until next week because you need help with a problem right now. So what I do every morning and every evening, I do my it's, – it's my twice a day check-in. I'll look on Google Classroom. And if you posted a question on Google Classroom, hey, I don't understand how to do this problem. I'm either going to give you a quick solution or I'm going to direct you to a, a, a resource that's going to help you solve it. Right. Um, and that's a really powerful tool. It actually does not take that much time out of my day to answer those questions but it multiplies the value of what you're bringing to the table. Because I'll tell you right now, Kaplan doesn't do that. Sylvan doesn't do that. Um, and then
0: the reason being, they, they don't have the resources or capacity because they have a much wider student caseload. Ezekiel, you said you use, uh, you know, you write it on your iPad and then it reflects on the URL and then you use Zoom. So it's a simultaneous uh, thing that, you know, people mm-hmm. have to use. So they use the URL to see visually and they use Zoom uh, for listening to you. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Um, I have also
1: found if, if you're new to tutoring, I had to learn this the hard way. Don't force your students to have their camera on. Uh, a Thanks. lot of students feel really, really uncomfortable with the camera on. I am 100% always camera on. I like to have a, a virtual background on filter on as well. It doesn't look good. It, it's, it's a bad look to have chaos in the background at any time yeah um yeah. and it's it also diverts away from the focus you don't want to have to that like you really want to develop the mindset that that 50 minutes to an hour that i'm working with a student those are really sacred time i do not want to burn any minutes on any kind of nonsense so like if i have to it, even me saying like oh, oh i'm sorry my my dog is running past and zipping him around here cool but now i just took away 10 20 seconds that we could have been using on something
0: else Ezekiel, just uh, one other thing uh for you know Again, aspiring teachers and stuff like that, just for them to save their time. What are the things that you think you wasted your time on uh, when it came to marketing?
1: Oh, wasted, um, paying you for thought, oh, marketing I, in the very beginning, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, was was that was a waste? Um, doing doing uh, paying to prioritize posts, uh, paying to boost posts. If, you, if you've never done it before, don't waste money that you're just throwing money into a black hole. Um, especially like, even, even if you do get hits in the very beginning, if you don't have a consistent content stream already, let's say like, if, if, this is probably something that everybody's gone through at least once. Have you ever clicked on somebody's social media profile? Like, oh, I love this content. And then you go to their webpage. There's nothing there. That doesn't build and inspire a lot of confidence. So even if you were to successfully get more views out of paying for that boosted content, which by the way, you're not going to, if you're brand new at it, you're not going to generate a lot of excitement. In fact, quite the opposite. People are going to come to you and say, Oh, what? you're still kind of content bear. Um, Well, why would I be interested in anything else that you have? You want to, you want to get to that point where like, I really am on a regular content stream. There's plenty of different content for you to view. And then, like when you start building that engine up, then consider maybe boosting posts. I still don't do it. Uh, I I actually uh, I, I I go the extra mile and put a little extra effort in. Because I really like having a very low overhead. It's the best part of being an online tutor is it is an incredibly low overhead business. There's not a lot of money that you need to spend. If you write my expenses versus what I earn are a pretty wide profit margin compared to a lot of businesses. I'm I think my profit margin is somewhere in the range of about like 90 percent, which is ask ask any small business owner they would kill for a ninety percent profit margin. Yeah. So keep it that way. Don't spend a lot of money on this business, put front load it with the expenditures. You need headphone, computer programs, maybe a tablet. Like I think I spent, I spent, uh, $1,500 all when all was said and done for all the stuff I needed to get this business off the ground at the very beginning. So that was, that was like my initial investment. Um, and that would be my number one thing. If, if you're spending a ton uh, of your money on stuff that you don't know for a fact is useful, that becomes an issue. So like get your bearings first, then start branching out. Ooh, I need help. Like start to know what you need help with before you're willing to invest into it. You, you'll, you'll learn eventually like, Ooh, I really do need help um, with a software program. That's going to help me like really understand and disseminate some of this information to the kids. Cause it takes that load off of me. Figure it out. That's something you need. Um, a lot of people do, but don't do it
0: right away without knowing that's what you need. That's what I would say. is the kill. And uh, about uh, a few words about SAT and the test prep zone, right? As Absolutely. a tutor, uh, there's one question that I always wanted to ask was, uh, when you do two things, right? One is SAT is changing to digital SAT. Now, how mm-hmm. does that impact you as a tutor? I mean, does it have an impact at all? If that it's going online? It's... Not as impactful as I thought it was going to be. Um,
1: I do pay. I I do personally pay to take online SAT tests. Uh, I used to do them on pen and paper like a student has to. Um, I would say if you've never, especially if you're someone like me, like I didn't take a computer test when I when I took the test years ago. I would say take the test yourself as a tutor. If you're teaching SAT and you haven't taken the test in a while, you're really doing a disservice to your students. It's it's very important to put yourself in that mind. Take the three or four hours out of your time and complete the test from start to finish and do it the way that the students have to do it in the actual test room. So if it's a computer test, you can find a mock computer SAT exam and I've done it. Um, I think the major thing is how do students write notes? For their, how do students do physical written work? That hasn't changed. Um, you still need to have scrap paper by you. Um, I think one of the elements that really bums me out is that doing annotations is a lot more difficult on a computerized test than on a paper test. And the annotations yeah. are really, really important. One thing I always tell my students to do, particularly on the math exam, circle the actual question. A lot of times, students will get focused on something that isn't actually being asked of them. So the first thing you should do is circle, physically circle, what is actually being asked. Well, I can't really do that on SATTM. I mean, they have highlighting tools, but it's more time-consuming. I do not want you burning your time on annotation. Annotation should be instantaneous. So I've had to really work around around that. Um, I remember I told a student to circle the question the other day, and they came back, "Well, how am I going to do that? It's on a computer." I'm like. That's a great question. I had, a, I had a, so you have to you have to really think around those things. So I think the annotations have suffered. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is the SAT test. It just continually, it, it's been changing for years and years and years. It used to be on a 2400 scale before that it was on a 16. It went back to a 1600 scale. If you're in the state of Florida right now, the state of Florida is trying to move away from the SAT test. They're now doing the classical admissions test. So they, they defined their entirely new test because they want to step away from the SAT. So it's, It's completely changed all the time. So this is not the first time it's changed. It's not the last time it's going to change. I think that there are elements. But what I'm actually instructing the student to do in terms of the core components doesn't change. Because the actual knowledge that you need in order to pass the test
0: stays pretty consistent. Right. And during the course uh, of the preparation for the SAT or the ACT, what's the average number of times a student need to take the practice test to the mock test of SAD or ACT according to you
1: that depends on the student i mean the first thing i always do with any student i'm taking on for any if, if you're doing test prep with me and not just doing a gen ed uh tutoring with me the first thing i'm going to have you do is take a diagnostic exam even if you have taken a diagnostic exam before i'm going to administer one to you because i want to get a baseline um And then the results of that test will tell me a lot of information. Some students will, some students just have a mindset that is just naturally adaptive to a test taking environment. Some students are very content focused, but not test focused. Um, So it really depends. I'd say I like to have my, I don't want to overload it. You don't want to overdo it. If you're asking your student to take the mock exam 10 times, that's too much. You do not want to overwhelm the student, but then, I'd say the magic number is probably two or three. Right. One for your diagnostic an, an a, at least an additional one again, before we get to the test, ideally probably two more before we get to the test. It depends how much time, if somebody calls me late in the season and calls me, uh, you know, in April and says, I'm taking that test in two months, I'm not giving you four practice tests. We're going to spend almost all of our time on content. Right. Um, but if someone hits me earlier in the season, then I might hit you with as much as three or four practice tests, like one for each quarter of the school year, just to keep you sharp. Great. So that way, like, it's because it's good. The more times you've taken the mock exam, the more times you get accustomed to keeping the timing in mind, um, putting all these elements together. Because it's easy to forget that when we're teaching, we're really taking all of these segments, but we're we're blowing them up into hour-long sessions. And so it's it's easy to forget, oh, I'm not going to have a full hour to work on this one problem. I got to get it done within – I have fifty. my 50-second 50 timer just started on this problem, and I got to move on.
0: Right. Got it, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I think I'm done with all my questions that I had for you. And uh, it helped because you were pretty focused and concise in whatever you had to share and very you know, articulate as well. Uh, thank you so much. I am uh, a teacher. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> it <was> too. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, use it as a learning management system and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.